So he, you know, when you were around him, you felt, I think people felt challenged as I did when I met him uh, to live a more selfless life, you know, and, and make sure that I didn't um, live greedily or that I didn't become too materialistic or that I didn't become callous and indifferent to the suffering of other people. Uh, all of those things were central to what he taught, but also to how he lived. So I think it was that unique combination of being a really effective writer and teacher and communicator and being a, a really uh, extraordinary example of discipleship and, and service that um, really catalyzed his influence for a lot of people. It is time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and I'm excited uh, for a couple reasons. One, I'm going to be able to visit uh, with George Handley. I should say, uh, doctor. Are you Dr. Handley? I, I am a doctor. Okay. Yeah, well, then let me sort. appropriately call you Dr. Handley. <laughs> uh, I'm excited to be able to visit with him. I've heard uh, a lot of things about you uh, from some colleagues and some of that stuff. Don't worry, mostly good. Uh, but also, we're going to be able to talk about Lowell Benyon, which... Maybe that name, maybe certainly the last name sounds more familiar than the first name, but find out who he is. Uh, so I'm excited. Welcome in, George. Good to have you here. Thanks so much. Yeah, happy to be here. Now, uh, I should give a special shout out to uh, the folks over at University of Illinois Press, especially Heather. She's who's helped us to get all of these um, different authors for the, and I've, the name is escaping me right now, but it's a, a, essentially... A, Mormon thought leaders, uh, introductions to Mormon thought or something along the Mormon thought where uh, there are these different books that come out every couple months or so. And we've had the opportunity to visit with all of the authors. How did you get roped into it? Uh, well, Matt Bowman and Joe Spencer, who are the editors of the series, uh, are, uh, you know, friends of mine. They told me about the series and they actually uh, had asked me pretty early on if I was interested in writing something on Lowell. Um, they knew that I was a, um, you know, fan of his, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, you know, knew that I had known him in my, in my younger life. And so they just said, do you think you might be interested someday in writing something like that? And I, at the time I said, yeah, but you know, not for a long time. <laughs> I felt pretty busy with other projects, but, um, I don't know. It just kind of compelled me to get started on it a lot sooner than I thought. So I think mine is the third book in the series. So it's just, uh, um, you know, glad to have gotten it in early. Yeah. And it's an interesting series, too, as I look to <laughs> some of the ones that I know that they've announced for the future. Um, it's not necessarily... Um, I don't know that I want to couch it like mainstream Mormon thought, right? It's Mormon sort of in the big umbrella of Mormon as they start to uh, extrapolate some of the other individuals that will be coming up in the future. So that's that's kind of cool. I'm excited to learn to, to learn about Lowell Benyon and the Benyon family as a resident of the Taylorsville Benyon area, which I'm assuming, though don't completely know, is named after them. But I want to get to know you first a little bit. You are, in fact, a uh, professor at Brigham Young University. Yep. And yeah. uh, and what do you teach and how did you get there? And is that what you always wanted to do? Give me a, a little bio on yourself. Yeah, I, I teach um, my degree is in comparative literature and I teach comparative literature and um, what's called uh, interdisciplinary humanities. Um, okay. I focus mo mostly on um, the Americas, Latin America and, and U.S. Uh, culture and literature. And I also focus on what's called environmental humanities. Um, 
but I've been doing more and more uh, work in what's known as Mormon studies or, you know, sort of Latter-day Saint thought and theology. I've written quite a bit about the environment and Latter-day Saint values. Um, so that, and that's kind of what got me into this uh, conversation in Mormon studies uh, to begin with. And I've, I've really enjoyed doing, doing that in my later career. So I don't, I don't necessarily think I saw myself as, uh, ending up at BYU and writing about Latter-day Saint things, but, um, uh, that's how it turned out. I, you know, I was eager to, I grew up back East and I was always desperate to teach on the East coast and it just never happened. <laughs> and then when I got a job here at BYU, I was born in Utah, left Utah when I was a young boy. And so it, it really felt like a homecoming and I've, I've just loved every minute of it. Give me an idea. I have no idea what comparative literature is. And maybe everyone else is like, idiot, how come he doesn't know what that is? But I, like, to me, that's like, uh, well, this is a poem and this yeah. is a limerick. Okay. So how is a poem? It, well, I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, it's basically, um, you know, this, it, it's the same as any uh, literature PhD in English or in a foreign language. It's just that your job is to compare literature across different language traditions. So um, to get the PhD, you have to specialize in three languages. Um, and I specialized in English, uh, Spanish, and Portuguese. Um, so I did kind of literature in the Americas. Mm -hmm. um, so I was looking mainly at Spanish, American, and American comparisons, Caribbean literature. Um, so the idea is, you you know, oftentimes what, what uh, within a national context people think is exceptional or unusual or unique in their literary tradition turns out to be not so unique hmm. uh, because it's shared with other cultures and other languages and sometimes those uh parallels are happenstance they're not necessarily because you know uh writers have been reading literature in other languages or something like that it's just that there's similar uh contexts and similar anxieties or or themes that arise so you know, comparatist is somebody who's trying to find those connections across cultures. And I, I I did that at first about the history of slavery and its impact on literature in the Caribbean and Latin America and in the United States. So so you're sort of like a literary buzzkill, right? Like you think you're so special. You're not. Everybody is thought the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's one way to put it. I, I mean, sometimes it is a little bit like more exciting because it's like, well, you know what? The problem that we were dealing with in the United States with the history of slavery turns out to be something that we have solidarity with other countries about, you know, and maybe we ought not to think of ourselves as having an exceptional history and mm -hmm. recognize that our our history of slavery, for example, is is widely shared in this hemisphere and and we have a lot to learn from each other so it opens up new opportunities i think yeah i like the way you described it better than the way that i described it i think yours is a lot more you know productive constructive those kind of things and when i hear spanish and portuguese that makes me think that you served a, a mission somewhere that that helped you with one of those languages yeah i was intent on majoring in english uh, uh as it as it was uh and then left on a mission and served in venezuela and and uh had no idea uh, based on my high school spanish experience that i was <laughs> good at spanish speaking spanish in fact i thought it was pretty terrible because i had a pretty terrible high school uh, uh foreign language experience i had a great high school experience but my foreign language teachers were terrible so i didn't learn any spanish in high school and then i served in Venezuela. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm pretty good at this. And not only was I good at it, I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, it just made me 
like high as a kite. I just love speaking another language. And I thought when I get home, I want to learn another one, you know? And so when I figured out that I could do all of that and study literature, wow. comparative literature, it was like, oh, well, now I know what I want to do. The only problem was, you know, there's no job at the end of that. So I had to figure that out. And I just thought, well, the only way to get a job in comparative literature is to keep doing comparative literature. Yeah. yeah. So it worked out. I feel pretty lucky. So let me ask you, uh, because Venezuela no longer uh, allows missionaries, right? Because of the political upheaval in Venezuela. Or yeah, I think not, they're. Not I think they're internal missionaries yeah. there, but yeah, there are no U.S. missionaries. Yeah. So, did you ever get the opportunity to go back before it was sort of a forbidden place to go? Uh, only very briefly afterwards. I served in '85 and in 1986, and I went back in like 1980. Eight, I think, um, and you know, visited some people and had you know, got went to the beaches that I was never able to go to yeah. as a missionary and had it, you know, had a lovely experience. Um, but I, I kept and for a long time, it was still you know, okay to go there, although it was getting increasingly unsafe. Um, and I, my research seemed like it was inevitably going to bring, bring me back there at some point for a conference or something, and I had a couple of narrow misses. Uh, and then and then it just, you know, shut down. So, no, I haven't been back since uh, the late 80s. Something else that you said that uh, has nothing to do with why I wanted to visit with you, but sort of piqued my interest. Uh, you talk about uh, essentially like being a good steward of the earth. You know, those th that's something that you're passionate about. Are you a part of that? Uh, the um, I know it's not church affiliated organization, but there's a, a group of sort of uh, members of the church that. Uh, I wish I could remember the name. I'm struggling to remember names of things this morning, but it's essentially there, there, like Mormons for yeah, the earth. <laughs> there are two. There are two. There's, uh, and I am affiliated with both of them. Um, I co-founded LDS Earth Stewardship mm -hmm. and then uh, Mormon Environmental Stewardship and Alliance, MESA, is, mm -hmm. is another organization. I have dear friends who are pretty actively involved in both and um, support both. How, how significant is it that, uh, in the last couple of years to you that you see the church making outward strides. I'm thinking most recently about, you know, this uh, sort of pilot program in the state of Utah to say, hey, we're going to be a little bit more water conscious and, you know, in, investing or, or taking the the, yeah. the cost and saying, let's see how we can do this. How can we, you know, reduce our, all that stuff? That seems very outward compared to, you know, maybe a past LDS church. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's probably more 19th century than it is 20th century um, for the church to behaving to be behaving that way. Because in the 19th century, you know, they they did talk about water and they talked about overgrazing and and all kinds of things from the pulpit because they were of immediate concern to a lot of people. Uh, that kind of vanishes during much of the 20th century, and um, and I think it's really encouraging that it's coming back. Um, you know, it's it's been so. Yeah, I'm a, I'm very very encouraged by that. Bishop Cosse's uh, general conference talk from uh, a year ago was historic in my mind. Um, it, you know, it didn't get a whole lot of media attention, which kind of surprised me. I thought, well, this is <laughs> this is one of the most significant talks given in general conference in my in my memory. Um, and it was it was really powerful talk. You know, really advocating for stewardship to be part of our discipleship. Um, so I, yeah, I, th the church is definitely, um, pursuing this. I think they're, they're taking action, um, uh, uh, toward more and more overt stewardship. The church has actually done a lot of great things in mm -hmm. terms of environmental stewardship over the years, but they, 
have been super quiet about it. And I think now they're realizing, uh, you know, maybe that was counterproductive. I think they thought of it as a kind of, I don't know, humility or something like, well, mm -hmm. we don't want to brag. And it's like, no, 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 you should brag, you know, yeah. because people, people think that we don't do those things or people think that being a Latter-day Saint means being anti-environmental in some way. And, mm -hmm. you know, so I think, I think that tide is, is uh, changing and it's, and it's for the good. Um, so I'm excited. Yeah. Well, and you see that, and then yeah. I promise we're going to talk about uh, Lil Ben. I promise we'll yeah. get there. We okay. will eventually get there. <laughs> no problem. Uh, but uh, I mean, even the stuff in Brazil, where it seems like internationally, where you know we're yeah. stepping out and saying, "Guys, we're part of the really conversation." Really big deal. We are. We yeah. are. You know, coming to the table as sort of leaders in this, and then I sort of counterpoint it to uh, uh, the stake president uh, and I are visiting. This is a couple months ago now. And uh, he's like, hey, you know, how are you? And I'm like, I'm fine. Great. You know, it was a uh, time to get my temple recommend again. And uh, and he's like, anything else you want to tell me? And I'm like, how about we zero escape the the church here? And he looks at me and, and I'm like, no, I'm being serious. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, let's, you know, uh, there's a great community around here. Let's teach everybody what zero escaping is. And maybe we can use the church's buying power and leverage and we can, you know, do the whole community. And it was a, a gentleman who just who just looked at me and was like, yeah, I don't think we're doing that. <laughs> and, and then and then now counterpoint. And now the church is saying we need to do this. <laughs> yeah, because I because I think he would be, I you know, and he and so many of us are like this yeah. where the church says, Go and volunteer and help the immigrants. And we're like, we all, okay, here we go. And and I think it's just another place where the church can say, this is important. Yeah. Get, get on board. Let's do it. You know, uh, to make the hard shift, let's take a break real quick. When we come back, we're going to be in the second block of the cultural hall and we'll jump into who Lowell Benyon is, the Benyon family in general. That'll come back in the second block of the cultural hall. <laughs> I had an email from someone who listens to the cultural hall. I believe it was a, not a lifer, but a convert who said, Hey, Richie, are you still teaching the podcast classes? And the answer is yes. In fact, I have even fine tuned it more than I ever had before. So you might be asking, well, Richie, how do I get on on that? Well, you can always email contact at the cultural hall.com, or you can find me on social media, wherever I'm at Richie T. Stedman and reach out and say, Hey, I listen to the cultural hall. I would love to learn more about podcasting or your podcasting service a class, a cohort. There's a group of people. I've even taught uh, the ward historian about podcasting, what it is and how it might be a great benefit to people. If that's something that you're interested in, whether it's for your business or just for your private hobby, maybe something you see your future in, would love to be able to help you along the way. You can find me again anywhere on social media, Richie T. Stedman, or you can uh, just contact us, contact at theculturalhall.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Let us podcast together. To be clear, this is still a show. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop, and they start at only $29 a month. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember that you can always send us an email, contact at theculturalhall.com, and sometimes your emails help us to uh, get in contact with uh, our next guest, or it, uh, it lets us know we should not have a guest like that guest that you did not like. We love the feedback. We love being able to hear from you, and it can sometimes just be things like... Um, you know, uh, where do you record? Or uh, does does uh, Dr. Handley, uh, you know, does he like grilled cheese sandwiches? They can be the most random of things and the most pertinent of things. And that's what we love about it. It is dealer's choice. Contact at theculturalhall.com. Please send those emails. We love getting them. Now, uh, doctor, let me ask you this. Um, most people, I think, am, am I accurate in most people go Benyon? That sounds familiar. 
have no idea who Lowell Benyon is? Yeah, I mean, I think the Benyon name is very well known in, in Latter-day Saint culture, and especially in Utah, because it was a large polygamous family. So there's a lot of people who are related to a Benyon. Um, uh, that's part of it. I think he's the most famous of all of the Benyons, but he came from a long line of, um, you know, very prominent um, uh, educators in the state. His father was a dean of education at the University of Utah for many, many years and was <clears throat> involved with the General Sunday School Board of the church. And, um, you know, so he he, he came from a, a, a well-educated, prominent family that was um, well-respected. And then you know, his, his career kind of took off and really made, made his name famous. And he's, there's a Lowell Benyon uh, service center at the university of Utah today <clears throat> that, you know, carries his name. And so students at the university of Utah will certainly recognize the name, sure, but sure. you know, his, his books and, and, and reputation kind of faded as uh, after his death uh, in the, in the 1990s. And so he's, he's not as well known today as he was. But, but put him in uh, in sort of context. Was he groundbreaking in a, a theory of this? Was he a, uh, you know, the, the first one ever or like wh what makes right. him sort of significant? Why why would we why would we, first of all, want to read and study about him? And second of all, you know, there's a reverence uh, that you have towards him uh, that you sort of inter introduced at the beginning of this saying, you know, you had an opportunity to know him. I can't imagine that you say that about everyone. So what right. what, what makes him significant? Well, I think um, the thing that he was most known for is his humanitarian work. He was um, kind of a, a Mother Teresa of Mormonism in the 20th century. He really um, lived a very, very humble and simple life and dedicated um, most of his waking life to serving other people. He he was a teacher um, as well. He was an extraordinarily effective teacher. I argue that he's one of the most important educators of the 20th century in in the restored gospel <clears throat> he, you know he's a first institute director at the university of utah which i think was the fourth institute of the church mm. there were there was one in in uh idaho and one in arizona um and i'm not sure where the other one was but he you know that that that's a very central place right to get started and he writes the first manuals for college students um really articulating a vision of what religious education can and should be. And so he's foundational to a lot of um, Latter-day Saint thinking in the 20th century. But he, because he exemplified it so well in his um, active serving of other people and his commitment, he spent the latter part of his decade <clears throat> running a community service coalition in Salt Lake. So he was helping the homeless and um, widows and the uh, underprivileged um, all the way to the end of his life. And so people revered him for that mainly. I mean, he as a as a teacher at, at the University of Utah, he brought students into the community to serve. He he was about hands-on practicing of the gospel that he was teaching. You know, he didn't believe in sort of theoretical uh, conversations about gospel truths that without any sort of real life practice. Um, so I think for those reasons the the tens of thousands of students who came under his influence in the middle of the 20th century never forgot him you know they they all um you know revered him and saw in him someone who was both an extraordinarily effective teacher and communicator and writer but someone who um without ego 
you know, served other people and lived his life for other people. And that was his call to everyone else was this is this is what the highest purpose of life is, is to give yourself up and lose yourself in the service of other people. So he, you know, when you were around him, you felt, I think people felt challenged as I did when I met him uh, to live a more selfless life, you know, and and make sure that I didn't um, live greedily or that I didn't become too materialistic or that I didn't become callous and indifferent to the suffering of other people. Uh, all of those things were central to what he taught, but also to how he lived. So I think it was that unique combination of being a really effective writer and teacher and communicator and being uh, a really uh, extraordinary example of discipleship and, and service that um, really catalyzed his influence for a lot of people. Individuals <clears throat> like this uh, often have anecdotes that are told about them. Do you happen to have one uh, that you can pull from where you're like, he was out of this and this is what he said or did or any any sort of story that you could share? To example, well, he was he ran a boys ranch in Idaho. Uh, he started it in the 1960s, and I went there as a boy in the 1970s. So and is it like later, a scout ranch? Because when I hear boys ranch, I think that you know, yeah, it wasn't Dr. it wasn't Hanley affiliated was with the Boy Scouts. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't affiliated with the Boy Scouts, so it had nothing to do with merit badges or anything of the sort. In fact, he quite disliked that idea of merit mm. badges. He it was it was about self development and work. Uh, he had had an experience when he was a young boy where his father sent him to a ranch in Nevada. I think it was an uncle or something uh, that he went and worked a summer uh, on this ranch and he thought it changed his life. Um, and so he wanted boys to have that experience of hard work um, that would create a sense of self-esteem and also service. So we did a lot of service in the community. It was in Teton Valley. Uh, I was later a counselor at the ranch as an 18 and 19 year old. So in the summer of 1983 and 1984, which were the last summers he ran it. Hmm. And, you know, so his, I, I can't, I can't point to a single moment, a particular moment, <clears throat> but every, every time I was in his presence, I, you know, I soaked it up. I soaked up his influence and asked him lots and lots of questions. I read everything that I could get my hands on that he had written. Uh, I do know that sort of a, an unbelievable anecdote, but I had a schizophrenic uncle, my dad's brother, who was a very, you know, as schizophrenia goes, it was a very, he was a very difficult person uh, to spend a lot of time with because his, his behavior was erratic and, and challenging. And Lowell was such a compassionate soul that he offered to take my uncle to Europe with his family on a vacation um, many, many years ago, uh, you know, as a, as a way to try to help him. Um, so I have sort of a family debt to him. I think that that kind of stunned the family that he would he would even want to do that. <clears throat> he was very patient with difficult boys at the ranch. Um, you know, the most difficult boys would often spend a day weeding the garden with Lowell. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like maybe punishment, but it was actually a reward in a lot of ways to spend any time with him. And he was so calm and strong and steady. Um, that that was kind of his method for helping to bring a little reform into a life that needed it. Um, you know, he, he claimed the boy, the ranch wasn't intended for, you know, troublesome kids, but <laughs> there were always, there were always several who were really troublesome and, and difficult. Um, but he was extremely patient with them and, and, you know, very, very effective with them. And all of it was really about, again, sort of outward oriented action and, um, you know, building up self-confidence as a doer 
you know, that, that really transformed young boys. It certainly transformed me as a kid. And, you know, I mean, I just, you know, literally remember noticing my muscles were bigger. I was tougher. I could say that I hiked in the Tetons, that I had built a fence, that I, you know, had skinned yeah. logs and chopped down trees and, 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 you know, bucked hay and all the rest. And I could, I could show for it in terms of my physique and my sense of self. Uh, it was just totally transformative. And when I think now about, you know, kids getting smartphones at age eight and, and by the time they're 12 and 13, when they could be having that kind of experience or instead playing video games, you know, I think, I think Lowell was on to something. He, he really worried that, you know, something was happening in the culture where we were becoming too materialistic, too distracted and too entertained mm. and weren't um, focused on the things that matter most. And so he, he built that experience around a desire to transform. And that fortunately, you know, he only did it for boys at the time. It's now uh, run, the ranch is now run somewhat differently, but it's still run in that same valley and it's run for boys and girls uh, now and families. Uh, mm. So it's got a lot of really beautiful things happening. You know, it's interesting when you hear uh, about mm. uh, Lowell and you hear about the life that he led uh, and then having sort of the familial um, recognition, you know, with his, with his father being in uh, the, like the general board, right. Of the education for the church it, it, in, in a 21st century term could be almost labeled as like, you know, and I hate this term so very much, but this was sort of Mormon royalty where he could sort of be like, yes, I am a Benyon and, 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 and sort of rest and reside on that. Where do you, uh, in, in what you know about him and, and what you certainly had studied in, in prepping this, where do you think that that came from? Was it innate? Was it a mom, a dad, a grandparent? He woke up one day after, you know, struggling and a, a lightning bolt. Like what? What's, yeah. What? Well, he he gives a lot of credit to his parents. Um, you know, his uh, several of his siblings became educators. Um, of course, and some of his children became educators uh, as well. Um, he he um, he credits his father for helping him understand the gospel as a call to ethical treatment of other people. His father was quite um, a scriptorian and, you know, I th he talks lovingly about the experience as a child, l learning about the scriptures from his, his parents um, and his father, you know, I mean, the church was a lot smaller back then. Right. So his father rubbed shoulders with general authorities and, um, and they were sometimes in his own home and he became friends with uh, David O. McKay. Um, and, you know, during the time he was an Institute director, he felt he could go to David O. McKay directly with questions. Uh, he had a couple of private meetings with him, um, mostly about the ban on the priesthood that concerned mm -hmm. him um, because he felt, you know, he felt like he had access, right. He felt like he had that permission Um I, so I think, but but I think what he learned from his father is that to be a Benyon is to be uninterested in uh, self-aggrandizement and, uh, you know, rewards and um, recognition. I mean, Lowell was um, assiduously um, dedicated to living a life uh, that, that avoided the pitfalls of fame, even though he became so beloved Um you know, he really, he really worked hard not to make himself into some kind of a guru or some kind of a, an idol 
that people could come to for, um, you know, the, he he was about empowering people and helping them, you know, become spiritually and temporally self-reliant, right? So he he wasn't he wasn't int- it was not healthy if if somebody became too dependent on him or too clingy toward him. So I I don't think he he was ever interested in becoming uh, a figure, you know, I think that made him somewhat uncomfortable. And yet, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't help but write, he couldn't help but make his contributions. Um, so he was writing books all the way to the end of his life. And um, because I think he felt I have something important to say, I understand the gospel. Well, uh, I've done it, I've taught it, and I've understood it. And I've um, written about it you know, for decades. And so I, the church, you know, I think he felt like the church needed him, whether or not they were going to ask him. Uh, they did, of course, you know, formally ask him to be the Institute director, but he, he is bumped out of that job in the early sixties. And, um, but that doesn't stop him from writing, you know, more, uh, more aggressively, um, uh, for the church. Right. Um, but during a period in the seventies, eighties and into the nineties, when, you know, it wasn't really clear where, where was the, where were the venues, where were the places where a thoughtful Latter-day Saint could make their offering to the general membership of the church in a way that didn't come across as, you know, trying to tell the general authorities how to run the church or didn't come across as I want to become somebody's, you know, uh, uh, proto-apostle or, uh, that sort of thing. Um, you know, but if you read his books, like there's very little of him in them. You know, he's not very personal at, almost ever in his writing. Um, yeah, even though he's very effective and he writes in a very accessible, simple way for any reader, um, he was not he was not interested in making his story into something that was of you know of interest to other people. Um, which is in some ways too bad because I mean he had such an interesting story to tell and the few times that he gets a little bit personal in his writing it's very compelling, um, but he just he didn't he didn't like that he actually he actually worried that the culture of keeping a journal uh, that you know President Kimball had emphasized when I was a kid uh, he worried that that would make make us into very self obsessed kids <laughs> you know where my story is what matters and I got to sure. spend all my time writing my story. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if that's a fair critique of what journal writing can do, but he just, he, you know, you can just, I just say that because of how, how worried he always was about, you know, selfishness and self obsession, self orientation, which was really one of the great diseases of our time, um, that he felt the gospel could cure if, if we would let it in heaven, he's just looking down going, what is this social media? What oh, have we done? Yeah. What is going on? Why? What yeah. Is- why did we think that was, is there a story to why he was uh, bumped out of being the Institute director? Yeah. Yeah, there is. I mean, it, it, it looks like, um, you know, he, I mean, he was, he was not afraid to speak out um, not in a way that was blaming or that named names in, in the leadership of the church, but he asked provocative, tough questions of general authorities about the justifications for the ban on the priesthood for men of African descent. He just could not, he wanted a moral, he wanted an explanation for it that made moral sense. And every time he asked, he got explanations that made no moral sense to him whatsoever. And he tried to point that out to people. He tried to say, you know, diplomatically, 
patiently, kindly, this doesn't this doesn't make sense. It's not fair to say, for example, as some uh, leaders said that there was something in the pre-existence that they did that deserved this. And it's like, well, you know, he would say, why would why would there be what kind of a sin would there be? that is so egregious that God wouldn't give anyone an opportunity to even know about it, let alone repent of it. You know, this just doesn't right. make any sense. He couldn't square it with everything else he understood about the gospel. And because he was at least willing to ask questions um, for some uh, leaders of the church that made him a little bit suspect. Um, the, the, the probably the biggest nemesis for him ended up being Ernest Wilkinson, who was, not only president of BYU at the time, but he was ended up being the church education commissioner. So he was over the whole educational system at the same time as he was over BYU. And he had some of it, what it was bureaucratic. He wanted Lowell to require class, offer classes at the Institute that, that got college credit. He didn't, he didn't like Lowell's system where the, nobody got any college credit for it. And Lowell didn't want to do that. So that was a big difference of opinion, but it, mm -hmm. it's also clear that Ernie Wilkinson was not was not happy with Lowell's um, willingness to ask those questions, even though I think he respected Lowell. Um, he ended up he ended up bumping him out as the institute director and never and Lowell never really got an adequate explanation for why. But that created, a you know, there was this big public outcry letter writing campaign to church leaders about it. And Lowell regretted that his life story was getting shaped around that and and really didn't want to become some sort of martyr or, you know, critic of the church. He was a very devout Latter-day Saint. And so he just kind of quietly went his way and did did other things with his life and didn't like to make a lot of noise about it. And later when the ban was lifted, he he was asked if he felt vindicated. And he he said, I don't I don't have any, you know. I, I've got lots of lots to do and worry about right now. I'm not interested in feeling vindicated. You know, he was certainly happy uh, with with the change, but um, you know, just just didn't want to make that central to to who you know who he was or what his life was built on. That's a significant uh, example in and of itself, because I think of individuals like Lowell. I think of um, folks like uh, any of the individuals involved in the September six. And, you know, some of the things that they write about are so tame in comparison to the Internet of the 21st century. Maybe, right. you know, maybe still some things that we would go, yeah, I don't know. But a, a lot of opinions are held by members of the church actively attending and being able, at least on some level, to speak on it on the Internet. Where you have something that you you so firmly disagree with and then we go, yeah, it, it's different now. Like that, that to me, you have all the example of the service that he does, all the example of education that he does, the loving that he does, the life changing and all that. But just the example of like, yeah, I'm grateful that yeah. they're able to have the priesthood now. Like that in and of itself is a lesson to be studied and, 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 you know, garner all the, the, the knowledge and patience and love. I, it, that's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, he was he he talked about being um a loving critic of the church um and you know that's different than the phrase loyal opposition which is sometimes invoked and of course uh, president oaks has recently you know said loyal opposition really isn't a thing and we don't need loyal opponents um but i i i think what lowell was saying when he talked about loving criticism was that i mean he 
and he based this in LDS theology that there, and you know, there is agency in LDS theology is inviolable, right? It's absolutely central to what it means to be a Latter-day Saint is to understand that our agency is so important that the entire universe is, is structured around it, right. And respecting it. Um, and that God's plan is entirely, um, deferential to our agency. Um, and, and so he, he just kind of took that and ran with it and said, well, you know, that means it has to mean among other things that the, the LDS church does not want nor need members who are, you know, just following for the sake of following or who are, who have, abdicated their own conscience or their own judgment, right? So he was always interested in creating that space. And he, he, um, but, but he was also very, very serious about the first half of that phrase, loving criticism. He was very serious about what love meant, right? And, and how it, it should in, um, manifest itself in the way that a person lives one's life, right? And part of that is that thinking and ideas are not more important than relationships, nor more important than action. And so I might have my opinions about X, Y, or Z, or about mm-hmm. what General Authority X or General Authority Z said about, you know, the latest controversies. Um, but, you know, that should not become the substance of one's discipleship in the, in the gospel, right? That one's discipleship is is a personal relationship to Christ that uh, means I give up my life. I, I, I lose my life in, in service of other people. And if I'm serious enough about that and really working hard to enable other people to flourish in every way possible, um, I don't really have a whole lot of room left over to just sit around and like kvetch and, you know, complain about, things that are not going the way I want them to to go. I mean, he was so adamant about this that when, you know, there were a group of us who were counselors um, the last summers he ran the ranch, we were, you know, definitely thought of ourselves as acolytes. We, we admired him so much. Um, But if we ever complained about anything, his first response was, well, what are you, what are you going to do about it? You know, (laughs) it wasn't about like, but I don't, I don't want to do anything. I just want to complain. I yeah, just want yeah. to say that this person has let me down or the, the institution has behaved in a way that disappoints me. You know, he was a person who studied institutions. Uh, he had a PhD in sociology, uh, having written the first English language study of Max Weber. So he was a very brilliant man. And he understood that institutions are bureaucratic and they often are do become their own worst enemies and their bureaucratic structures and behavior sometimes create what he called churchianity rather than Christianity. Oh, I like that's why they need, you know, they need help, but they need help was his point. It's not that they need criticism. They need loving, you know, one has to have the judgment and critical capacity to see a problem, but then one has to have the moral decency and humility to say, I'm going to be part of the solution. I'm not going to just sit here and call it out. I'm actually going to do something about it, you know, and I know a lot of people scratch our heads in the church and say, what can I do? You know, the church is so big, it's so bureaucratic, but you know, the beauty of being a Latter-day Saint is the lay structure of the church. There's tremendous opportunity for influence, you know, if you, cause you know, the names of your local leaders and, you know, you have an opportunity occasionally if, if, if you're lucky to give a talk or to give a lesson and, have a voice and be a part of council meetings and other kinds of things where we can exercise 
steady, strong, uh, helpful influence. And and there are lots of good examples of that in in the church today of people who, you know, stay steady, but they don't stop offering, you know, loving criticism. Um, another way to think of loving criticism is loving suggestions, right? Sure. Loving, uh, uh, like what you offered to your stake president, you know, sure. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure you were, you know, not thrilled with the answer, but it, it's not like it stopped you right from being who you are and thinking the way you think and continuing to want to offer your gifts. Yeah. Uh, I want to take another break real quick. When we come back in the third block, uh, I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about that churchianity because I think that is a brilliant, I've never heard that term before. And that's his, that's not mine. Okay. Well, it's fantastic. So I want to talk a little bit more about that and, uh, and about, um, you know, the, the church in the 21st century and some things that I think that we can maybe learn or glean from the life of Lowell Benyon that maybe we can take on ourselves in the 21st century to make the church a better place and to be better, uh, Christian stewards of, of uh, the gospel and of of the earth and all that stuff. Plus, there's three questions we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you as well. That is coming back in the third block of the cultural hall. Best DJ in Utah.com. You're right. It's a new ad. What? Well, it's been an entire season since I've recorded a best DJ in Utah.com ad. And well, the wedding season coming to an end at this point, but not really because what happens now is everyone who's going to get married in 2024 reaches out and says, Richie, is it possible? Do you still have this date? And I tell them, yes, hopefully. And then we get you booked. We'd love to be able to work with you. Uh, travel all along the Intermountain West. Some people call it the Jello Belt. Uh, you can go to bestdjinutah.com to request a quote. You can find us on any of the social medias at Best DJ in Utah, and uh, we can answer any questions. Affordable, yes. Over 400 five-star reviews, yes. Highest rated in the state of Utah, uh-huh, go on. It's bestdjinutah.com, and, and I'll give you a little hint. It, it also helps me to be able to do this, like financially support the cultural hall through that and you get something in return imagine running a small business today it's challenging imaging and internet presence is an absolute must even with that you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe now imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients imagine Lennon design whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation advertising media and promotional materials Lennon design is your partner in business they'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you when you need creative affordable design let it be lennon design call 801-699-3022 or visit lennondesign.com here in the third block of the cultural hall remember you can become a patreon saint of the cultural hall and we would love it if you would do so go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall it is a way that you can put your money where your ears are it's not free what we're doing. We've spent, uh, I mean, we've been doing this for 12 years for crying out loud. Things cost money, all this stuff. It also, if I'm being quite candid, it's a way that I feel like I'm I'm appreciated. If you take a couple of your hard-earned dollars a month and say, I appreciate you in the amount of $2 a month, I'll take it. Patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall is how you find us, how you do it. And don't forget that if you are a Patreon saint, you get to be a part of the secret but not sacred Facebook group that uh, all the Patreon saints are hanging out in. So uh, patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. So I think of, of Lowell uh, in a, in a 21st century mindset as sort of a disruptor. You're familiar with the term, you know, disruptor. It's uh, someone that takes an organization and they, they say, you know what, we're doing it like this. 
and I believe in the bigger thing, but let's look at it a different way. And I, and I, I see this and I laugh about this, um, that some of the people that we love the most within the church, whether they be leadership or, you know, the church, especially here in the 21st century, we start to have these, um, these influencers or these people that we sort of love. And there are people that don't fit the mold necessarily of the church, right? So I think of, um, who am I thinking of? I think of like, uh, there's a lot of love for Emily Bell Freeman, uh, who recently called, and I love her previous guest here of the Cultural Hall. She's great. But I think that a lot of the things that people have said about her is that she is super relatable and that she looks different and she doesn't speak in the Mormon woman, you know, tone of how you speak these things. And and uh, and so we're drawn to these people that um, that do things in a different way, believing, but do things in a different way. But then inside we go, but everyone should be like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Would you please wear the same color dress top, the same pearl necklace, the same <laughs> earrings? Gentlemen should only have a mustache, if anything. It it seems like such a... a I like your beard, by the way. I just Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like such a push-pull that we're like, yeah. yes, we love it, but also I can't do it, but I want to be it, but I don't dare. But there, you know... It, I I I don't know that I have a question at all that, but I would be curious to your thoughts about, you know, how how do we navigate that? Is there lessons from Lowell that we can be able to, to you know, either imbue some of the courage that he you know was able to have, if that's the right word, or how how would we walk in those footsteps? Yeah, I, I mean, a fundamental to Lowell's understanding, which I think you know, I'm entirely persuaded by as is fundamental to our theology is the idea that, you know, I mean, Mormonism not only accepts the Christian doctrine of being created in the image of God, this is that that idea of being in the image of God is absolutely vital to all Christian ethics, right? Every serious Christian thinker who's thought about the ethical implications of what it means to be a Christian has said, you know, when you, this is sort of what Jesus said, when you encounter the least of these, you encounter me. And so if you, if you and I can learn how to see the countenance of Jesus in another person, there's something radical that happens, right? This has radical implications for society. It has radical implications for service. It cuts across every category of division and difference that you can imagine and demands of us, um, uh, the capacity to see and to honor that divinity in another person. But <clears throat> the restored gospel sort of takes it even high, to a higher level and says, well, it's not only sort of the imprint of God that's in each of us, but there is actually something in us, an intelligence, if if we want to think of it that way, which sometimes we use that word in, from the scriptures to describe it, but there's a part of us that is uh, co-eternal with God, right? That, that was neither created... Um, um, nor can be destroyed, that is part of essential to our agency, and that we have this divine potential. We're not only in his image, but we have sort of his, um, his uh, you know, his, his divine real reality as our, as our future, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so Lowell saw that as a profoundly important call to work for the flourishing of human life wherever and whenever we can. And, and that can be something very secular, right? It can be teaching someone how to read. It can be teaching somebody a skill. It can be 
um, certainly befriending someone and helping them to feel valued and loved. It can be uh, opening certain doors of opportunity for them. Um, and it and it shouldn't be just one-on-one. In his mind, it also includes what he called social morality. It means that we have to work for uh, the flourishing of, of all human life, right? So Latter-day Saints who get involved in refugee work or Latter-day Saints who get involved in anti-poverty work or anti-racism work or any any sort of uh, effort to try to open up doors of opportunity for people, I think in his mind was was an appropriate expression of our doctrine, right? Of our doctrinal understanding of human life. So there's you know absolutely no room in in Christian theology for judgment, right? For mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> flippant uh, armchair sort of dismissal of a person based on any, anything, right? Whether it's their physical appearance, their sexuality, their gender, their race, uh, their religion, their language, whatever it might be, uh, we have to be, you know, totally committed to uh, overcoming those barriers in the interest of that common identity. But that isn't to say in Lowell's thinking uh, that we shouldn't acknowledge or recognize difference. You know, I have heard, um, some Latter-day Saints say, well, I don't see color or I don't see race or I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sexist because I, you know, I, I clearly believe that the genders are equal, but, but then, you know, when it comes, push comes to shove, they can't actually accept those differences uh, very effectively or don't even really know what they are. Um, And that, you know, that's when it breaks down very quickly. So we have to, we have to actually spend enough time with other people to understand the differences as well as, and maybe this gets back to comparative literature for a second, but you know, yeah, you here we go. You can't, you can't know another person or another culture if you don't know it on its own terms, right? If you don't know its language, its its language of understanding, and what makes it what it is. Um, that's the only way you're in a position to then start to do some sort of assessment of, you know, is this difference something that you know, prevents me from being able to relate to this person? Is this difference something that I think is a a problem or is this something, is the problem lying in, in me? Um, anyway, the bottom line is though, that a lot of that is very conceptual work. And mm-hmm. I think Lowell was also just like, just, you know, just do the work, just do the service, you know? And there's something magical that happens when you kind of put your brain aside and all the thinking that you're doing and conscious deliberation about people and about yourself and you're trying to figure out who's got what value and all of that. And, and if you're just putting that noise away and really serving other people and giving yourself uh, away in service, um, you know, you're really, you're finding Jesus and that, you know, and that that's the partnership that, that we should, we should want. So, I mean, I think, you know, he was very concerned about racism during sure. his time. He was concerned about, you know, he didn't use the term sexism, but he was certainly concerned about gender and gender inequality in the church and actually had some interesting suggestions that are still in in circulation today about, you know, maybe there are ways in which women can be more involved than we think. We're just limiting, you know, we're over over estimating the <clears throat> significance of the of the priesthood difference to to prevent women from really growing in the in the gospel as much as they can. I mean, he was adamant about education for men and women. So, I mean, I think he was very ahead of his time in that way. I want to say one thing. Uh, 
he, he was actually quite old fashioned, you know, I mean, all of his ideas came from scripture. They came from his reading of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Sermon on the Mount was absolutely central to his thinking. So it wasn't like he was disruptive only in the sense that he was, he was just trying to remind everybody of what the fundamentals were. Sure. You know, and that because there's a tendency within organizational life uh, to 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 get it wrong. Let me let me give you a formula for how he understood this. He said people are the most important things in the universe, and and the gospel of Jesus Christ is is the best philosophy that helps us understand why people are the most important thing in the universe, and the church is the best institutional instrument by which to bring the gospel to people. But that priority in that order, right, is people first, right? Mm -hmm. People mm -hmm. are not more important than institutions. And, and the gospel is meaningful to us because it, it helps us to honor people. So even our concepts of what's the right way to be a Mormon or the right way to be a Christian should not get in the way of relationships to people. I, I just think that's a really healthy formula. And to circle back, you know, like I think of uh, someone like Joseph Smith was very much a disruptor, both in greater Christendom, but also within his time um, in relation to like, uh, you know, blacks in the priesthood at that time and the, the rights of women and some of his political things as he was running. You know, I'm curious, uh, is it wrong for me to assume that some of... Um, like Lowell's uh, legacy because of the tug of war within the church uh, politically in the sort of 60s and 70s, you know, where you have varying sides being sort of passive aggressive from the pulpit, you know, with one another, a, a liberal and a conservative, um, you know, going at it. it because the church has sort of leaned more conservative in the last 40 years that we have sort of leaned away from individuals like Lowell Benyon in hierarchy. I know that's sweeping, man, that is so sure assumptive what I just asked you to confirm or deny. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, um, uh, I, I think one thing that happened that, that shifted for Lowell kind of under his own feet, his own thinking didn't really ever change, but when the church opted for what we now call correlation, where it said, we're going to produce manuals, um, mm -hmm. by committee, uh, they're going to be impersonal. We're never going to have the name of an author or a set of authors on any text uh, that's produced by the church for uh, instruction in church. Um, I think I think in some ways, you know, the church basically said we're we're pulling out of the business of conscripting certain individuals to do work for us. But I don't think that meant that, nor means today, that the church doesn't want or doesn't need individuals to do the work that they do. I mean, I, I, I'm confident that no church leader, or maybe there's some, I don't know, but I can't imagine church leaders saying today, we don't need a Terrell Givens doing what he's doing in the church, right? Uh, or nor do we want him um, because he's doing a tremendous service for the church, but he's never been conscripted, you know, in the, in the way that Lowell was. I mean, I guess you could say he's now a church employee because he works at Maxwell Institute. So certainly there's some institutional imprimatur on him that says we like what he's doing. But, but even if he had never been brought to the Maxwell and was still at University of Virginia publishing his books, we would still feel a great debt of gratitude to him for the, the quality of, and importance of the work he's doing. 
And and not everybody is a Terrell Givens, but my point is that I think there's plenty of room in the church, not only room, but desperate need in the church for creative thinkers, for people who are innovative. uh, You use the word disruptive or, or, um, you know, using, I mean, I think Adam Miller is incredibly compelling to people because he doesn't, he doesn't use the typical vocabulary, you know, in letters to a young Mormon, you, you, you feel as if you're hearing things for the first time it's so refreshing because he's mm-hmm. not using cliches. He's not using borrowed uh, language, um, but he's not a revolutionary, right? He's not trying to advocate for something that's radically different or opposed to anything that the church teaches, but he is he is trying to open up certain opportunities and avenues of creative spiritual life for members of the church. And what a blessing that is, yeah. right? So I, I mean, I take a lot of inspiration. I think there, I think right now, I think there's a, I mean, I almost want to say like a golden age of Latter-day Saint writing and thinking going on. That's really remarkable. I mean, if I had had anyone like a Terrell Givens or an Adam Miller uh, or a Melissa Inouye, when I was in college, you know, I would have been, I would have been drinking it up. I had Lowell Benyon. I had, you know, I loved uh, Elder Maxwell's books. And I, and I, and I read a little Hugh Nibley in, in those years. I mean, I, but there weren't that many people. It was like, you know, you could count them on one hand, Gene England. Right. But, but it wasn't like it is now. I mean, you know, and you, you, you're doing this podcast, there's all kinds of, um, venues and means by which people can access interesting, creative ways of being a Latter-day Saint now that, I mean, there's a lot of noise, so that's maybe part of the problem is like, where do I find the really good stuff? But once you find it, you know, you yeah. drink it up. And I, I feel like the Living Faith series at the Maxwell Institute has produced some of the finest books of Mormon literature ever written. Um, I mean, Charles Inouye's b- uh, book in that series, uh, Zion, Earth, Zen, Sky, is, is stunning. You know, so I I, I think I, maybe I'm off on a tangent here, but I just I feel like we're we're in. I, despite what happened to Lowell and I think Lowell's lesson, I think the lesson I got from it was Lowell didn't stop writing books. Yeah, He didn't stop giving to the church because the church decided in a particular moment, they didn't want him institutionally, but they still needed him. And he yeah. knew that and he still gave and what he gave was remarkable, you know, and I'm just trying to resurrect some of what he gave because I think it's so remarkable, but, but I, I think I could say, like I say, I could point to a dozen people right now who I think are making um, significant contributions along those same lines. I will say this, though. There's no one who had more to say about ethics and social morality than Lowell Benyon. I, I think that's one thing that's missing in our culture right now is that we're too we're too much up here in the head mm-hmm. and we're not we're not acting. We're not living with our heart as much as we should. And Lowell was worried about being overly intellectual, like over intellectualizing the Latter-day Saint experience, making it about thinking right rather than doing good. Well, and that's where I think, I mean, mm-hmm. just, just to interject, that's where I think the church makes a difference, uh, is able to 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 uh, touch the hearts and, and change hearts of people is in is in the doing is in the being with another person in the helping another person along the way. I think it's very rare that you're like, I would like to approach you on a topic let me convince you in the way that I believe and come along. I don't think it's my, I don't think it's like that very much. I think a lot of times people, you know, feel the love, the genuine concern, the, 
you know, humanity, the all all of the things of that person walking alongside them that draws them to Christ. So I think that's significant. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting where you have an individual uh, who lived. He has heirs, people that are around. Do have people of the Benyon family appreciated your book or said, George, doctor, you got it all wrong. What are we doing here? <laughs> uh, no, they've been very generous. I, I did write a, a small little self-published book uh, about six years ago called Learning to Like Life, a tribute to Lowell Benyon. Uh, he had these um, aphorisms about um, things you needed to learn to like in life that I think are really lovely and and they were important to the camp, uh, the boys ranch that I went to. So I, I, at a certain point, I, you know, it started out as a blog, uh, that I did with a friend. And then I thought, you know, I should, I should just write a little couple of essays about each one of these. And I sent that to the family at the time and they were so appreciative and, and complimentary. I got, you know, feedback from them that made me feel like they felt like this was, even though it was this tiny little thing, they just felt like it captured so much of what he was about. So I was definitely encouraged by their enthusiasm. And I'm speaking specifically of of um, a, a couple of his sons that I know, uh, Ben and, and Steve, uh, quite well. I don't know. I don't know his other kids as well, but um, and and one of his grandsons is is one of my dear friends. And so I, you know, I'd had. I'd had some encouragement from them. And then when I told them that I had been conscripted to do this book, um, you know, they were just very encouraging. And I, I don't, I haven't gotten the full word yet about what they think of the book. Uh, although the grandson, who's one of my close friends, Lindsay, uh, you know, is, is over the moon about it and he's buying it for all of his family. And, you know, so there's, and I, I heard that, you know, I've heard rumors of book groups uh, already talking about it and so on. So I, I certainly want nothing, uh, but for them to have, you know, a feeling of gratitude for it and a feeling that I captured, um, you know, what he was about and what he, what he did with his life. It, it's not a biography, right? Full blown biography. Sure. There's a biographical chapter, but it's really kind of an intellectual history of Lowell's thought, which was not accomplished in his lifetime. You know, there was a, bi a very important biography written by Mary Bradford um, of his life, which is, you know, really fascinating read. But but this was an attempt to try to capture the essence of his thinking. Um, and, you know, I, 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 they, they were I, I was corresponding with them and 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 letting them know about it and, and asking for feedback and so on. So they, they've been they've been, you know, aware of it and supportive of it from the beginning. Uh, people can find a link to purchase it in the show notes for this. So you don't have to go searching for it. You can just find the link in the show notes, click purchase, get it. Uh, and we encourage you to do that. And again, a, a special thanks to the folks over at University of Illinois Press for all the great work that they do. They do, man, they do some really cool stuff in the Mormon space and grateful for what they do. It is not missed on me that there is a Benyon heir named Ben Benyon that... <laughs> That uh, that seems sort of funny to me. I don't know. I Worth a comment because I'm like, Ben Benyon. Okay, let's do it. There are three questions that everyone who steps into the cultural hall is asked, and I will ask those of you right now. The first question is, is do you have a calling? And if so, what is it? I do. I'm a, I'm a first counselor in a bishopric. Okay. This is my, my fourth time as a bishopric counselor. <laughs> Always a bishopric, never the bishop? I've been I've been a bishop uh, of a married student ward, and I was in a stake presidency for uh, about four and a half years. 
Yeah. Do you yearn for the day when it's like you just get to go to church and then you're done? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't I don't know. I mean, I'll take whatever whatever is given, but I I really I love it. You know, I'm I I love working with the youth. I love working with the ward. I love helping a, a good bishop. You know, it's 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 very fulfilling. So I don't know. I don't know. I guess I'm just built that way. I, you know, I, I, I enjoy, enjoy being actively engaged and sitting on the back pew has not been my style. Yeah. I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, I always get the opportunity to teach and I, it's a similar where people are like, you get up and you try and navigate. And I'm like, yes, absolutely. I love and get people a little bit, you know, out of their comfort zone or let's start this a different way than people have ever had a lesson. I'm all in. Yeah, I'm sure you're great at it. I, I've, that's the calling I've always wanted, and I can't seem to ever hold on to it for more than like a month at a time. It's just, yeah. just, te- just to have me teach Sunday school. I'm happy to do that forever. But yeah, but you put me in a meeting, and I just go, "What are we done? Is this almost done? Listen, I'll do all of this. I'll do yeah. whatever is asked if I just don't have to be here anymore. Just give me a list." Yeah, we do a lot of sitting. Uh, 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 The second question is, if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Well, I think I just said it. I think I would I would gladly teach straight from the scriptures every week. Sun, so Sunday school, and, but are you teaching the adults? Or are you teaching the the teenagers? You know, I, I love teaching the youth, but if if I had to pick, <laughs> I definitely would go with adults. Uh, you know, I teach college students, so you know that's that's about as as young as I'm I'm ideally suited for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't want to have to deal with like discipline in the room. I don't want to <laughs> have to tell people to be quiet and sure. stop interrupting. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I do, I do appreciate an adult audience, but when it works with young people, it's really magical. You know, I really enjoy that too, but, but yeah, definitely, definitely adults. Well, and it's literally life-changing as far <laughs> as subject, what, you know, where we talked about, like you got Doctrine and Covenants or Book of Mormon or older New Testament. Let's, let's dial it down one more further. Which of the four would you be teaching? If you got, you get a year, what are you teaching? Probably the New Testament. Cool. Yeah. Cool. All right. The final question that we ask, we ask everyone, and and you are also charged to interpret it however you would like. But the question is, what is your favorite part of your faith? Hmm. You mean, hmm, like my favorite doctrine or something? Or any, it, is, it is I up can to elaborate. your interpretation. <laughs> uh, well, I guess uh, <clears throat> I guess I would say um, I I told my my teachers quorum the other day. That I wouldn't be a Christian, I wouldn't be religious. I probably wouldn't believe in God if it weren't for the concept of progress and growth after death, and that there are means by which people after death can be redeemed. Um, I don't. I don't find room for believing in a just God or in a benevolent God or a fair universe at all. If there isn't, uh, you know, I, I, I would say I would even be more specific than that. I think my favorite expression, if I'm, if I'm not too sacrilegious and quoting it from the temple is as if you were born in the new and everlasting covenant, which is, um, a phrase that is used to describe the ceiling. Um, to me, that is the most profound concept in Mormonism. <clears throat> That there's something sort of retrofitting uh, 
retroactively creating justice for all humankind through temple work and through our conception of eternal progress that I just adore. And I, and I don't think, like I say, I don't think I could be a Christian. I don't think I could be a believer otherwise, because none of it would make sense. You know, no matter how beautiful a philosophy is, if it doesn't make sense for all of humanity and there isn't some method or means by which all of humanity gets access to it, just doesn't make any sense to me. So I, I just, I just love the all embracing quality of the restored gospel in that, in that regard. I love it. Very well interpreted. I appreciate uh, all that you have said. Uh, and again, encourage people to pick up the book. You can find it uh, available for purchase. Just click on the link in the show notes. Uh, have appreciated your time. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week. And that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety in the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast. We'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show.